Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of Gate 7 International. I'm Costas Llanos, joined by star presenter Labros Sirmos, and today is an amazing day as we are joined by the Athletics' one and only Oliver Kay. Oliver, how are you, man? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. We're very happy to have you. Labro, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. The sun is shining in Brussels, which is very rare these days, every day, I should say. Um, so I'm happy. I can't be more happy with that. So all good. Well, speaking about happiness, uh, we're supposed to have a derby on Sunday against uh, Panathinaikos, the eternal rivals, a game that could, 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 could take the title away from them if Olympiacos win. But guess what? The game might be, uh, might be postponed as uh, Panathinaikos, at this time of recording, which is uh, Saturday, uh, 12, uh, 11 past 12 p.m. Central Eastern Time, Panathinaikos have uh, stated that they have had over 20 cases of COVID-19, mostly by players, so the game might be postponed. That's that's a blast from the past, isn't it, Labro? Yeah, it was. we were talking about it before we went on an air, how it's like you haven't heard a story about a game being delayed via COVID in so long. And the regulations nowadays, if you, if you get COVID, I don't even think you're supposed to quarantine anymore. So I don't know how this works and if they can even delay it legally because there's no longer measures. I I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it is the game, although Olympiacos' season is basically over all intents and purposes, they can steal the title from Panathinaikos in a closed door game. So let's see. Let's see how it goes and develops. And I'll be in Athens next week. So if it's delayed, maybe I'll, I'll get to be in the stadium for it. So that'd yeah. be amazing, man. That'd be amazing. I mean, I was at the stadium in the last Karaskaki uh, game against Panathinaikos. Uh, it was quite a game, nil, nil, a, a goalless draw, entertaining goalless draw. And uh, I covered it. I did my, I made my live commentary debut with Costa Levoyani, and it was quite a, a special night for me because that's the night I met Oliver. Uh, <laughs> he he covered the game for the Athletic. He had a lovely interview with uh, Socrates Papastathopoulos after the game, and that is where we met Oliver. Uh, and I gotta ask, like, I mean, you've covered a lot of games uh, throughout your your career, but I mean, this one is special. I mean, it was intense. Uh, there were fireworks. There were. The, the, the fans were going crazy. We had owners uh, on the touchline. We had VAR drama. How did you find that game, and how does it compare to all the big games you have covered live? Well, thank you. We're, we're running this series um, on The Athletic called Derby Days, where we've been going to you know, some of the biggest biggest rivalries, whether they're sort of inner-city rivalries like Panathinaikos, Olympiakos, or whether it's sort of big cultural rivalries like Liverpool, Manchester United, and Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Rangers, Celtic, obviously, is, is very, very fierce. Um, so we've been doing all these matches uh, in Turkey, in Serbia, in Hungary, in, in the Netherlands, and I, it was it was my wish to do the um, to do the uh, the derby of the eternal enemies. I, I, I put my hand up for that one straight away, and got it. It's intense, isn't it? I mean, that was when I consider that. You know, two things. One that it was well, three things. One that it was a nil-nil. Two that you know nothing was going to be decided in that game. Both teams were already going through to the playoffs. And three, there's no away fans in the ground, which has been a case since 2004, is it? Uh no, actually, I think that's 2006. 
2006. No, 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 2005, okay. late 2005, I think. Okay. Well, we, so despite these things and, you know, 33,000 people in the ground, it's not, it's not a huge crowd. God, it was so loud. It was so, it was so much louder than, look, you know, Old Trafford is 75,000. The Emirates is 60,000 60, or something like that. Anfield, 55,000. That's the loudest, that's the loudest ground I've, I've, I've heard this season. It's it's it was so loud, despite it being nil nil. I mean, the, the well, it wasn't funny for you guys, but but it was funny in a way for me as a neutral. The the reaction when Vrusai went through in in stoppage time, scored the goal, and the crowd went ballistic. Even the press box. There was a guy in the press box who was like jumping on his desk. That doesn't happen in England. Um, <laughs> and yet, and then, and then the VAR, you know, it was, uh, you know, and, and then Maranakis walking onto the pitch and having a go at the, or walking onto the touchline and having a go at the, the referee and the fourth official. It's Greek football is mad, isn't it? It's just, it's, you know, we, we always think in the Premier League, oh, it's drama, it's storylines, it's controversy, soap opera. But <laughs> in terms of drama and, you know, just, controversy this endless soap opera and incidents and contra- you know it's greek football seems to be in a world of its own and i can, and when you talk about the um the the, the covid sort of virus um sweeping um, sweeping parathenikos how how is marinakis the you know the great sort of conspiracy theorist the great um paranoia <laughs> paranoiac so how, how are he and how are olympiakos Go to react to that. You, they'll, they'll be demanding demanding the points, won't they? Demanding, insisting that yeah. this is some kind of um, conspiracy, and you know, insisting it's immoral. I mean, look, everything I know about Greek football and about Marinakis tells me this is just going to be yet another crazy um, polemic. <laughs> yeah, just wait. Uh, I don't know how much you followed these club statements that come out almost after oh, every yes. derby, and. I think in Greek, and as Greeks, it seems more neutral to us, but I love having it translated and sent to a friend. And they're like, mm-hmm. what Like, what are these references? And like, it's just <laughs> absurd, you know? Um, it, it's so ridiculous um, with the referees, the opposing team, the conspiracies against us. So I, I remember reading your article, and I think you may have spoken with Themis Kasseris from Sport24, and he said... "Yes." The, the presidents and the conspiracies are almost bigger than the game, which is something is so disappointing, you know, because you the atmosphere, the fans, the team, the big fights all together is what we really want to aim for. But it's it all comes back to the, the conspiracies and who controls the refs and what is going on with that sort of thing. The club statements attacking one another, it kind of overcasts the amazing environment. Um, yeah, well, t- yeah, well, t- t- Temis uh, Kassari said said to me, you know, we, I would say, look, what should I expect? And he talks about noise, and he said, he said, uh, I'm sort of roughly quoting, whatever happens in the game, it will it will end up being, you know, th- there will end up being a sort of controversy, a war of words, you know, it, it, it won't be remembered as the derby of such and such a goal. It will be remembered as that, you know the derby of the the a red card a penalty a foul offside it's always got to come back to the the controversy and it did i mean it was it was a 
it was a nil-nil. I mean, Olympiacos were much the better team on the night, but looked much more like winning. But I look. I felt. I, mean, I I haven't even been able to see a, a replay of it um, in the in the two months since because it, well, w- w- when I was writing the article, it seemed impossible to find anything on the internet. That's maybe that's something else. Um, Greek football needs to look at. Um, but yeah, the, the statement that Maranakis came in, out with that night was was wild. You know, it's it was you know the referee surgically control the games, and I think well, to me that looked offside. Um, I don't know whether, you know, I, I don't know whether it was, but to me it didn't, I didn't feel like I was looking, you know, watching a game which was, you know, a corrupt game or, or a corrupt championship, as, as he said. I, I, I wonder what, 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 what do fans make of it? Do, do fans, do fans in, in Greece, you know, do they leap on and get, get behind, get behind the, you know, the owners when they're saying things? Because it is so tribal, isn't it? So, I mean, do, 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 do the fans love to hear this or do they sometimes kind of roll their eyes and think, God, not again, just let's just take this one on the chin? Well, I think... I think... Go ahead, Kosa. No, I mean, yeah, but traditionally, uh, I, I I wrote a tweet the other day about the, the constant complaining and moaning in the Premier League that we see every week from various... Uh, from various teams and some, you know, usual suspects uh, mm. from the Premier League. Uh, it really, it's really starting to remind me the, um, the discourse uh, from when I was a child in Greece. You know, every week I would hear complaints about the referees and everything. And this now has, this now I feel like it has evolved because now I hear owners talking the same way that fans used to talk when I was a kid back in the early to late 2000s. So it's like you said, it's tribal. I mean, there are a lot of fans that will back the owner, no matter who the owner is, right? We're talking about all owners mm-hmm. from all across football. But we all, there are also fans who will oppose the owner and say, you know, hey, no, no, you need to make signings. You need to, uh, you need to get yeah, us a yeah. new manager. You need to build us a new stadium. But then again, you know, Greek football, uh, well, the Greek football is not the Premier League. It's a no. completely different beast, different, completely different animal. Uh, there is a lot of backstage actions. There, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes dirt. Uh, we have seen a lot of questionable refereeing uh, throughout the season. Uh, there's more than meets the eye over there. But when it comes mm. to uh, the fans, like you said, it's tribal. You know, you got the one side that will back the owner no matter what. And there's the other side that will be, there, there are the neutrals as well. And there are also the ones who will say, you know, listen, man, no, you just need to get us players. That's what you need to do. You need yeah. to rebuild mm-hmm. the team. No, I, and because this way you that. also beat the referees. This is what yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I would build off of that as well with Costa. There, there are fans, but I think a lot of fans are a bit tired of it. And in the same season, if you lose to a non-team that's going to be relegated maybe in France, like 3-1, Three nil, and then you lose to Karabag, almost three nil. You lose to who was it? Freiburg came in and beat us, Freiburg. I think, four, three or four nil in the first half, and then closed to the rest of the game. And you think to yourself, well, <laughs> are the ref the referees aren't the problem in in Europe, and the team is very underperforming. It could barely beat Apollon Limassol. It could bear. It had to go to penalties with Slavia Bratislava, Bratislava, Slovan Bratislava. So Slovan. the the logical. I think the logical fan here looks and says, "Well, you signed forty players. You never replaced your technical director. Um, 
They did. They brought the. They, they did goal. sort of, um, but you know what I mean. Uh, from a logical point of view, you look and you say you have four or five different managers. Um, something stinks more than just the referees. Like something yeah. else is going yeah, yeah. on here, and you have the whole Marcelo debacle, and then you have James Rodriguez debacle. Was he still? He was still on the team when you were. There. Yes. Yeah. He he didn't he didn't play that. That game, I think he, may, he, he may have been he was injured. injured. Yeah, yeah. It, was, yeah. It, was, it was not surprising to me that that things weren't working out. It just it, it's the impression I had was that it was a, he was like a statement signing, yeah. as in as indeed he Marcelo. has been Milton, really. Um, and, and Marcelo, Marcelo and as well. Rosalco. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it just looked. I mean, I I you know watching that game. I mean, I you know Sergi Canos, who's Brent, who was at Brentford, and it's good. Has been a good player at Brentford in the Championship. You know, maybe less involved when they last season in the Premier League, but good player. And he seemed to, you know, I thought, well, you know, could he be one of the stars? He had a really poor game um, in 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 that particular game, and it, it just struck me as a very difficult, dysfunctional environment to to play in. Um, yeah. So that's uh, and it, and it, you know, what the, the thing you're describing with Marinakis and and signing so many players. And sacking so many managers, it sounds very similar to what you know has been a situation at Nottingham Forest. He, you know, he, he's he's stuck with his manager Steve Cooper this yeah. season, which I'm really glad he has done. Um, but I think it must go against every inst- instinct he has because he just seems like a guy who, as a, as the owner, needs to interfere, needs to make his needs to make signings, make changes all the time. And yeah. I think the one the one reason why Nottingham Forest still have a chance of staying up. Well, the one reason they, they got promoted was appointing Steve Cooper last season. And the one reason they've still got a chance of staying up, I think, is also Steve Cooper. I think he's, he's done a, a very good job at what is, no doubt, another dysfunctional club under Marcus's yeah. ownership. Yeah. It, it just goes back to who's making the decisions and what exactly is occurring. And another element that I, I I don't know if you touched a bit on your in your story I don't remember I read it uh, when it came out almost the first day I clicked on it it was, it was a great read but is is the media landscape in Greece is kind of controlled by the clubs as well yeah, each club yeah. has a newspaper we don't have an athletic who will write things with data analysis and kind of dig yeah. into behind the scenes. Um, so the narratives are formed by the media as well around the club's narratives and no one really tries to pull the curtain back. Um, I don't know if you, you saw, but Greece was rated the worst media freedom country in all of Europe behind mm. a lot of countries. So it's, it's a question also about, is there really criticism domestically? Are there people kind of saying, well, why do you sign Versalco if he has no cartilage mm. in his knee? What's going on there? You know? So it's a yeah, yeah. it's a problem there, and the the fan perspective you kind of can win over with the newspapers, but there in the UK, I think it, if he had fired Cooper, the fans would have turned on him himself. If that makes sense, like the fans really yeah, seem to back I Steve so. Cooper. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's 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 a it's a you know it's not like that at every club, and and I think when he's sacked managers in the past at Forest, um, I think it's generally been because he's made the wrong appointment or, or because, you know, the things weren't working out because, because the club was a mess. And then he sort of finally got an appointment right with Cooper. And, um, 
and yeah he's probably had to resist the urge to change after after you know when they've when they've been on a losing run but it's um no, to, to me I, I i find it really i mean just coming at it from the outside i had for, i i knew that maranakis was you know had this big media empire i didn't realize that alafos Alafuzos, Panathinaikos, yeah, and 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 that, he, and that he and that he also had this this media empire. Look, I know. I mean, it's. I find it really infuriating in the UK that that you write something praising any club, any club, Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal. Fans of the other club will accuse you of being in the in the pocket or even on the payroll of of that club which is just you know the biggest probably the biggest insult you can you can give for, to, to, to a journalist um you know <clears throat> the, the the amount of ludicrous tribalism and bias among fans on twitter and you know they're accusing you of bias because you don't share their biased view of their club and yet i know that in you know that there's no there's no media organization no media outlet that i would say is strongly affiliated with any single club you know i, I really mean that in in the premier league i think you can look at certain maybe one or two of the papers in scotland and i think scotland is quite comparable to greece in terms of their absolute sort of madness and antagonism of of their football culture scotland you know there there have always been accusations about certain newspapers but it's you know, sometimes you have you know a journalist who will be so embedded in one club that you know that they reflect the club's position a lot of the time. They they reflect the 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 club's view and and are quite embedded in that club in that club. But if a, if a colleague gets a story about that club and it's really negative, mm-hmm. absolutely the 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 the, the media organisation will 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 run it. You know, it's 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 just it's just obvious. So I don't think that kind of institutional media bias could ever be allowed in England. But in Greece, it's, you know, that, that, that is, that is just part of the culture. Isn't it? It's meant to be biased. I, I looked at the, the, the new papers on the newsstand on, you know, um, the next day. And, and one of them was sort of had, you know, a heroic looking uh, Icos players and the other had this sort of quite deceptive looking freeze frame of of the offside decision and and, and you know I, I didn't understand the words on the front but it, it just seemed like you know you that that controversy was always going to be manufactured whether it was real or not yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 that is a whole discussion about the uh, about the media in Greece. I mean, you mentioned that uh, this sort of um, this sort of bias wouldn't be allowed in England, but we we, have, we don't see it in football. Although we do see a lot of pundits, you know, a lot of Manchester United legends, a lot of Liverpool legends, Arsenal legends, who of yeah, course yeah, are going to yeah. be backing their teams during the post-match analysis. Of course, they're going to back. Some of them are going to back the manager, uh, moaning about a penalty or an offside or VAR. Uh, but of course, like it, it is another story when it comes to politics. I mean, because in England there are a lot of newspapers and a lot of channels oh, who obviously have absolutely. a political agenda. Uh, obviously, this is um, this is uh, obviously Olympiacos are out now, though of the of the of the league title. They're out of the they're they're out of the cup. The only thing the only thing they're thinking about right now is uh, rebuilding. Uh, the game against Panathinaikos is nothing but a formalities. Only there's I, I suppose they want to 
to Locked. take away the title from them. They, they I, 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 I'd like to think that there's still some, you know, football ego over there. A lot of pride saying, you know, yeah, we're out of the whole thing, but we're not finishing fourth. Uh, and so now what they're doing now, they're rebuilding and they're looking, looking for a new manager. Before we go to the, to the next managers, to, to the next potential managers, I got to ask you this question. Do you think Nottingham Forest are going to uh, survive? Are, are they going to, going to avoid relegation? <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I look at Forest, um, Leicester, um, Everton, Leeds. It feels to me like it's it's two of those four. I would give. Um, I would give Leicester the best chance of staying up just on the basis of their recent results, recent performances, re- fairly positive impact of the managerial change and the um, the yeah just. I just think they have a bit more more quality. So in which case, we'd be looking at you know two from the other three, and yeah, I, I would say Villa. Sorry, not Villa. Apologies, Villa. You're doing very well. Uh, Forest, mm-hmm. Leeds, um, Everton. I mean, they all look they all look like they're going down, and one of them's going to stay up by perhaps getting a win and a draw. Um, interesting what Leeds have done with appointing Sam Allardyce. Um, it's the kind of thing I could have imagined Maranakis doing in desperation. Um, have Leeds got the players to play the way Allardyce will want to play? I don't know if they have. have. Have Everton have really tough fixtures? Forest, I think they'll beat Southampton. That's that, that's my prediction. I think that right. you know this weekend um, possibly proved wrong by the time people listen to this. But I, mm. I think that that's their big chance. Yeah. And if they do that, that they will have a a decent chance so i but it's, it's going to be really tough i you know if I, I could see it coming down to goal difference and being incredibly tense on the last day so i wouldn't want to make any predictions just, just, one thing i was going to say um just which I, which i've not managed to mention it's probably backtracking a bit but i i i was just when i went to um when i went to that game at, at olympiacos the other week the other thing that struck me and it's a familiar thing because I've had it when I've gone to matches in Scotland and when I've gone to matches in Portugal to a lesser extent, but the Netherlands as well. And, you know, this, this used to be, you know, 20, if, I, if I think back 20 years ago, the first time I went to Olympiacos was for a UEFA Cup game against Liverpool in 2000. Huh, and yeah. they had, you know, they, they, they had players who were, um, who were going to be, you know, in, in, the, in the Greek Euros winning team. They had players like Giovanni and yes. Georgievich. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was a really strong squad. You, you'd go to, you know, it, it felt like there was, you know, the Greek league, the, the Turkish league, you know, as, as well. You know, they would always have good players. They would always have, still have the best players in Greece, and and and, the, and Greece had good players at that time. And it's to me, it's just. I, I don't. I'm not being critical of of Greek football when I when I say I'm disappointed for Greek football that yeah. a they're not producing as many top class players and b it just feels despite the sort of financial strength that remains of the big clubs it just feels like the the quality is so relatively low. I was looking at the Champions League group stages in 2003-4. They had three. Three teams in the yes. um, in in the group in the, stage, in the group stage, which was the, yeah. which was the same as Spain, same as England, and if a team was going to you know you know if if 
a Premier League team was going to Olympiakos or Panathinaikos um, or to you know, Besiktas or Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, etc., you knew they would have a really difficult game. You knew they would probably win the home game because the Greek and Turkish teams never seem to travel very well. But, yeah. you know, I remember Liverpool, Liverpool had a terribly tough game that, that night in, in the UEFA Cup. Uh, they 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 lost um, they lost in Champions League group stage against Olympiakos um, in in the season they won it two thousand four five. I remember Liverpool going to you know Liverpool playing a European Cup semi final away to Panathinaikos against Panathinaikos eighty five and Panathinaikos reaching their Champions League semi final in Juventus and that just feels you know we've seen a lot of these leagues like the Dutch League, the Portuguese League, Belgian League, Turkish League, Greek League decline as there's been so much concentration of wealth and talent and power and revenue in the big well, five leagues, but generally the Premier League Premier and, League, and yeah. La Liga. I think it's really unhealthy for, Premier, for, for the rest of European football. And I think it's it's harsh that you know it's harsh that you know clubs like Rangers and Celtic and Olympiakos and Panathinaikos have to go have to find it so difficult just to get into the Champions League as champions of their country mm-hmm. but when I see uh, sorry Olympiakos failing to get past Maccabi Haifa and then finishing bottom of a of a Europa League group, which has Karabag and, you know... Freiburg and not. It feels like, yeah, it feels like Greek football, probably because of its own dysfunction, has fallen far more than other leagues. And yeah. it's, you know, I'm glad the passion is still there because, you know, I think the passion is probably the one thing that is really sustaining it yeah. right now. It's because the, the quality, sadly... Um, is, is diminished probably more than it should have been. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, though, it's important to mention that Olympiacos have made it out of a group stage in Europe uh, 13 times out of their last 15, yep. uh, 15 efforts. Uh, this is the, what, what happened at Olympiacos, in my opinion, this season in Europe is their worst European campaign I have ever seen. Yeah. But that yeah. is just an exception to the rule. And uh, despite the, the Greek League's dysfunction, Olympiacos have been a mainstay in Europe. Uh, the thing is that the others have seriously struggled. Panathinaikos mm. are but a shadow of their old self. They were also barred from Europe for three years, if I remember yeah. correctly, because of financial reasons. I, well, have always been quite a mediocre side in Europe. Uh, mm. they all, they've only won one Champions League game in their entire history, and they have the worst uh, points record out of any... Uh, Greek team as they won zero they they they, they, mm-hmm. uh, they lost all six of their group stage matches Pauk never made it to the Champions League and back then when we got three teams through that was I mean we have to admit it that was mainly Panathinaikos who were doing exceptionally well mm-hmm. in the Champions League making it to the to the semi-finals the quarterfinals then the quarterfinals of the mm-hmm. then UEFA Cup but even back then, Greek football was very dysfunctional. There were we called that era the paraga, which included a lot of dodgy refereeing, owners going crazy, a lot of underhanded tactics, a lot of bribing. So it wasn't Greek football wasn't healthy. But what I'm trying to say is that there is still a way 
for mm. Greek teams to uh, to thrive in Europe. Olympiakos have been doing it for the past uh, for for the past what is it uh, 23 years? No, no, 13 mm. years. Excuse me. Uh, and now Olympiakos basically need to um, need to find the kind of manager that are going to help Olympi- yeah. that are going to yeah. help them uh, regain their European uh, status. And yeah. uh, we've heard a lot of names. Uh, we. But uh, Costa, started... can I before we go to of the course. manager? I kind of want to touch on this a bit. Sure. Um, Oliver, it's a really good point. You and it's a, something I've been thinking a lot about this season as a Olympiakos fan and where we were um, in 2019, 2020, pre-COVID. That was seen as one of the best Olympiakos teams in the history of the club. The best, if, in my opinion. Yeah, and if not for COVID, then the year we knocked out Arsenal, it was an amazing team. Mm. And if Jose Saw hadn't broke his hand in training, we'd probably go through against Wolves and. And go very close. I, I think that team could have gone all the way in the Europa League. And everyone thought, and we we were on the back of a manager staying at Olympiacos for almost two, three years. That's unheard mm. of, you know, in the modern history. He and then Martins, after COVID started going down, Olympiacos was meant to sell all those players from that team, like a Cisse who was still there mm. when when you were there. Of Camara, course, the Camaras. They were they were meant to sell those players in the price range that I think other European leagues pre-COVID were paying, like 10 to 15 million euros. Like that's right mm. there in the, the the sweet spot for Olympiacos. And what we noticed after COVID, I think, was you had the Premier League teams paying the money, and then the rest of the leagues were going to free transfers or those five million yeah. under transfers, and so. That payday and experience Olympiacos was looking for never came in 1920, and the team tried to fill the gaps with free transfers, free transfers and shady loans and and whatnot. And that what we thought was the start of a new Olympiacos with Martins and new wave thinking really came and crashed and burned down. And before yeah. Martins came in, Olympiacos looked a lot like it does right now. And so I think a lot of fans are questioning to themselves. Well, was this Martins guy just a flash in the pan? You know, he came for three or four years, and he, he was historic. He stayed at Olympiacos. He made the team play good football, and he completed his circle. And now we're back to two to three managers a season. Who the hell knows what's going on? And you hear some of the names, which I know Costa is going to bring up and ask you a bit about. And it's just like failed Premier League managers or hmm. people who were probably looking at Olympiacos saying like, "Hey, if I get a few results in Europe, I may get the call from somewhere." You know, like that type of thing. Like uh, Gattuso, I know is a name on the list that he turned us down, I think, or something like that. So it's it's a weird spot. It's yeah. Who who is the club going to go to? Are they going to go to um, a well-known name? Or are they going to? Look again to the Portuguese or Spanish market in that mid to lower tier. Who maybe a younger manager who thinks, okay, I can take Olympiacos and build something here. So, yeah, no, it's it's a huge time. And again, we don't have. I think they're trying to bring in a new sporting director too. That's that's a big problem we've mm. got. No one knows who's picking the coach. I think I think the owner and his son and maybe a few other people are selecting it. So selecting him. So. It's really a question of how did we get there in 1920, even in such a, uh, as we all know, a very mediocre league, mm. and, and how can we get back 
to that or was that just a flash in the pan and we're not going to be seeing that anytime soon so mm -hmm. if that That's explains simple. it a bit more detail yeah. well like yeah yeah oh, well as labro said uh, we uh, we we've heard a lot of names uh this season we do have a we do have a bit of a chelsea and tottenham thing going on it all started with gennaro gattuso which we who appeared to be very close to signing but then Olympiacos pulled off, the Olympiacos fans pulled off at Tottenham and went nuts on social media. And then yeah. all of a sudden, Gattuso was not so close anymore. Yeah. Uh, then we had Alfred Schroeder coming to Greece to discuss the position, and he seemed extremely close. Apparently, according to Greek media, they saw there was a uh, we hit a snag because Olympiacos wanted him to take over now, and Schroeder obviously said, "No, I'm not taking over now because if I do, I'm gonna I, I'm not gonna look so great." So he flew back to the Netherlands. Then he was um, he was spotted in Bruges watching the game of his former team, and now he seems set to take to return to Bruges, where he had a lot of success. So now we've heard a bunch of names, and some of them are former Premier League managers that you're very um, you, you know a lot about. Uh, those are Bruno Laja, Jesse Marsh, Ralph Hasenhutl, Javi Gracia, and Kike Sanchez Flores. So I was thinking about going through one but going through one by one let's start with bruno lage uh who won the portuguese title with benfica in 2019 before joining wolves where he played a 3-4-3 formation uh continuing on from nuno espirito santo and did pretty well in his first season even though he prefers a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 formation and he did well in his first season despite having a small squad uh he was defensively sound but lacked in attack something that olympiacos fans are not too keen on and his game was mostly possession based what can you tell us about bruno lage who let's be honest though uh has been linked with the sporting lisbon job in case ruben amorim leaves and let's not let's face it we wouldn't be surprised if amorim gets linked with tottenham and chelsea if Mauricio pochettino doesn't take over there yeah he he summed it up very well um the interesting thing is, I mean, he, he arrived at Wolves. Nuno Espirito Santo moved on from Wolves to Tottenham in the summer of 2021. There was great cynicism from people like me when they appointed yet another Portuguese coach, which was obviously, you know, everyone thought, well, this is just this is just George Mendes picking another, you know, just the foot client. Um, this is predictable, you know, Wolves, you know, surely Wolves need to break away from this model. Um, he looks like another puppet type thing. So a lot of, you know, cynicism, scepticism. And I thought he did really well last season. Um, as you said, the football was quite defensive in some ways, but no, you know, certainly no more than it had been previously under, under Nuno. It's a squad which had been built to kind of play very compact way apart from the apart from the two wide forwards it was a uh, it was um yeah a, a squad built on strong defensive foundations and i you know i, I just had to look up to, to remind myself you know that they, they finished 10th and there were a cluster of clubs in the middle leicester brighton Wolves, newcastle palace all ending up within four points of each other but Wolves, i think Wolves going into the final few months of the season were almost like best of the rest in the Premier League, they were seventh, seventh, eighth a lot of the time, and and looked, you know, looked like they were doing, you know, I think a lot of people were quite impressed by Bruno Lage, and then they they ended the season very poorly, 
um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the goals dried up, a lot of poor defensive performances. They lost at home to Leeds, I think. Was it, I can't remember when they were 2-0 up. But, you know, they it seemed like the rot set in a bit and then they started this season poorly. And then I think people kind of retro judge it a bit and say, well, look, the signs were there last season. And then they, they moved him on, replaced him with Lopetegui, who has definitely brought more solidity and tactical discipline. I I feel he did a good job and is not somebody that you would think, well, he's a failed Premier League manager. Look, most most people who manage in, in the Premier League, unless you're Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp, you'll end up as a failed Premier League manager because you get sacked. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you get, you know, a lot of the a lot of the appointments are made with a very short term short term objective, and very often the managers succeed in the short term, steering a clear steering a team clear of relegation or whatever, or having a good first season, and then they get sacked in the second season. It's it's just it, that's kind of I mean I'm sure if we talk about some of these other managers, Javi Garcia, etc., it will be the same. So. I, I felt like he did, yeah. did well. One thing one thing I would say is, and look, this it doesn't it doesn't matter if you're winning games, but he didn't really kind of bring a great deal of personality or charisma um, to the club. I think if you're looking for somebody that you can really kind of rally around, an individual, um, which I think cer- suits certain clubs, you need you need the manager to be a you know, a real, you know, a, a really sort of visible, strong, um, sort of almost populist leader. I don't think he's that. I think he's good, a good technical coach. And whether he would have the personality to be that guy in the eyes of the fans, or whether he would have the personal personality to be able to stand up and say no to Maranakis at times. I think that's that would be the question I would have with a lot of these coaches, really, yeah. because. I think you probably have to have a special skill set to be able to survive under a under an owner like that. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to. You mentioned the name Jorge Mendez, uh, who we know very well. If you look at Oliveira's past transfers, past managers, and a lot of the managers who are quite close to the club now have a thing in common. They're a former player who had Mendez as an agent. Or they have Mendez as an agent right now as the manager. Um, how big a role do you do you see that playing? You know, with clubs selecting managers, like is this Mendez? I know is a different case, but at Olympiacos it looks like we're very close to two to three agencies. Um, of course, mm. this isn't written anywhere, but if you can read mm. the tea leaves by going on Transfer Marks, like you know, you, you yeah, can yeah. read it. Um, if you yeah. go in the newspaper and then go Transfer Marks, who's the agent of these people? It shows. Um, for for an owner like Marinax, do you think this relationship with certain agents is kind of play a bigger role in the hunt for coaches? Um, yeah, I think I think it does. Look, there's nothing, there's nothing corrupt or anything, you know, uh, anything like that. If it's simply a case of, if it's simply a case of having a good relationship with the agent and having, you know, having uh, the you know, the good connection and, and, and having a network of people that you trust. If it, if that's if that's as far as it goes, then that's 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 fine. That's normal. I was really surprised when Gattuso started being linked with um with with Tottenham and, and you know yeah. because I, I was I was aware he'd done he did 
he did well at Pisa, didn't he? At, at this, uh, you know, earlier in his career, he'd gone to Milan. Yeah, I, I, Milan, Napoli. You could say, well, you know, he did okay, but he, he wasn't necessarily the the CV that would make you think. You know, he didn't impress at Napoli as much as Sari did or as Spalletti did. That, that that's that's what I would say, yeah, especially um, the latter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but but Sari, Sari did a you know a brilliant job and as well and you know of, of those three coaches i think he's he's the you know probably the weak the weak link and you think spalletti himself was available that summer when when um when tottenham were looking you know going through this exhaustive managerial search and looking at gattuso and looking at all these names which looked quite agent driven and i think there's nothing wrong with being you know having the connection with an agent where you can um where where you can probably get yourself in a more favorable position to be recommended you know a coach you might not otherwise get but there has to be a bigger pool of talent that you're looking at beyond what a certain agent or two or three agents um are offering that, uh, that, that that's where i worry about a club and that, well you know I've, I've said the same about wolves it's 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 great having this access to the gestive foods george mendes stable but that can't just be your entire ethos cannot be built around this agent and agency which you know it's it's linked to your chinese ownership which might be gone tomorrow who knows it's it's yeah. it's no it, it, it's it's an advantage if it's if it's if you're using it in an advantageous way it's it's not good if it's part of your club's institutional way of doing things that's yeah. that, that's where i worry and look, there are uh, there are a lot of bad agents out there, who, mm -hmm. if you if you were you know if, if you were relying on a lesser agent or a less transparent agent or an agent who doesn't have such good players, then that that's where it becomes really problematic. So and and yeah. I suppose in the case of Olympiacos, look, there are many many clubs which George Mendes has great relations with. He's, he's one of the best agents in the world. So mm -hmm. if you're Olympiakos, in the position, the, the sort of diminished position in terms of wealth and power that the Greek league has now, you're probably further down the food chain than the likes of Wolves and Atletico Madrid and so on. It's, it, so there, you know, that's where it becomes difficult. Yeah. No, it's, it's more a pragmatic uh, situation, yeah. And, mm. uh, and, and which is why we're, uh, Olympiakos are still... Uh, targeting more tr pragmatic uh, targets for the manager's position. And another one is, uh, go ahead, Lando. Yeah, it, it's interesting what you said, uh, like the relationship with the agent, um, because George Mendes has brought us, of course, um, Daniel Podenza came to Olympiacos through Mendes, Jose mm. Sa came there. But we also got a lot of really bad players, you know, who also yeah. came, like Roderick Miranda. I think he played for Wolves as well. It was horrific like they almost can tried to cancel the transfer yeah. a week after he arrived and it also you get the thing where mendez says he'll come but then you're going to have to sell him for this amount and when i say he's gone we're taking him and he leaves and we saw that with podense we saw that with saad too olibakos in the end for i think the best goalkeeper we've ever seen that mm -hmm. was left for like 12 million euros or some yeah, really yeah. low fee so it has its pluses and has its down parts. And there's a few agencies. I, I know 
um, the name CAA, I think is one of them. Yep. is another big player with Olympiacos. They have a lot of clients coming in and out. And if you also look at some of the names, uh, we're not going to ask you about, but Rebrov and uh, I know Steve Cooper's uh, uh, a, a client of them as well. You know, you, mm. you sort of see a, a window as well. So mm. I, I really enjoy this this game of the tea leaves. You know, our fans know that I... I, I do a bit of this at work, so I, I quite like this sort of stuff. But Costa, go on uh, with with your other names. Well, I mean, the next name is someone that I do want to hear Labros' opinion about it because uh, it's his compatriot, uh, good old uh, Jesse Marsh, uh, absolutely uh, well known from his time at the, in the Premier League. Uh, before joining, he had two straight Austrian Bundesliga titles with Red Bull Salzburg. A roller coaster stint at Leeds with extreme highs and extreme lows. He was tasked with the unenviable job of keeping Leeds in the Premier League last season after Marcelo Bielsa left. Barely managed to secure safety as it happened on the last day. Uh, we saw some shocking defensive performances at times. He's trying various formations but appears to prefer a 4 2 3 1, implementing a high press. At Salzburg, he concentrated on high press and winning the ball back. Uh, he likes to keep his players high on the pitch. Uh, and um, uh, he, he, what he liked to do was to score goals by stealing the ball high up on the pitch and creating some dangerous counterattacks. What do you make of him, Oli? Yeah, it, it, he's, I think he's the most divisive of the, um, of the names that you mentioned. And I think he's probably the one who mm-hmm. has, in some ways, the lowest reputation in the Premier League. Uh, you know the the the, the Hutl, Gracia, Large, etc. Because he was he was not popular with with the Leeds fans. Uh, you know, I, I think he probably outstayed his welcome in some ways before before he was sacked. He, this season was really difficult, um, and of course he took over from a guy Marcelo Bielsa who was totally adored by the Leeds fans. Um, I don't feel. Jesse Marsh got anything like enough praise for keeping Leeds up last season. I know they finished seventeenth. They they were I think they were seventeenth when he took the job, or seventeenth, or some, roughly seventeenth. I don't think they were in the relegation zone. They were on their way out. They were on their way out. That's the point. Marsh joined. They were. Yeah. They were exactly. They were dropping like a stone. I think they lost six games on the run. They were. They lost. They conceded four against. Manchester United, six against Liverpool, four against Tottenham. It was, they looked like, they looked in Bielsa's final games the way they looked in Marsh's final games. They looked like a relegation waiting to happen. And I found it really sad. And I think it probably just speaks of the Premier League and how you just cannot afford to get relegated because of the ridiculous financial precipice that you're on if you're at risk of relegation i found it sad that they had you know they had to basically sack bielsa in order to survive because i think you know i think look please just please just give him the season let let him try to keep you out and you know let him be loved whatever happens but you can't do that in 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 the horrendous pressurized financially pressurized world of the premier league so i feel leeds were going down whether whether they were in the relegation at that point or not. He came in, I think, a, a difficult first few games. And then I think they won four four of their remaining games. And looking at it, they looked, they beat Norwich, they beat Lee, they beat Wolves, they beat Watford, they beat Brentford. They drew another three games. It was a really good 
run at a time when all the other teams who were at the bottom, Everton, Burnley as well, they were all improving form, the way teams often do in the, in the final weeks. So it was a really high bar from that point of view to come in from that point to come in and keep leads up probably higher than anyone realized at the time. And he got over it and they stayed up by three points by winning on the final day. I think it was really impressive. Um, and the difficulty then is that obviously they sold Rafinha and Phillips in the summer, um, bought very, very young, raw looking, talented, but raw players in the summer. And, I think he really struggled this season. After a good start, uh, you know, they had some good results early on, beating Chelsea, beating Liverpool. And then, yeah, it, the, the same problems that Bielsa had ha- encountered, they set in again. So I, I, if you if you were to judge him over the near 12 months he was at Leeds, you would say, well, he... he well, it wasn't it wasn't 12 months, was it, in the end? Cause it, but, but the time he had at Leeds he did well to keep them up and then couldn't like, like Frank Lombard at Everton couldn't stop them slipping back down into the, into the mire again. So I, but I think he showed enough quality to think that he's a good developer of talent. He's a good, he has interesting ideas. He's energetic. He's, um, I think if you looked at his final four or five games, you'd say, look, they cannot, that team can't defend that. That's totally disorganised. But that's that's very often the case when you look at somebody's last five or six games, isn't it? The, the, you should never judge a manager just on his last five, six, ten games. Generally, yeah. that's when the rot has set in uh, and the manager is struggling. So yeah. I, I feel his work at uh, Salzburg marked him out as a talent. His time at Leipzig was disappointing and short and you thought well maybe he's not not quite as good as we thought he was but then I was pleased that Leeds kind of ignored the Leipzig bit and appointed him on the basis of his work at Salzburg it's qu- quite often happens that you're only judged you're, you're only judged on your your previous job or your previous five six games but he, he uh yeah I I felt he justified his appointment in the short term at Leeds. Yeah. Uh, I felt I could s- understand why when Southampton were looking at him, a lot of people laughed and said, this is ridiculous. This guy's clueless. There's an anti-American culture, I think, when it comes to managers I- I- in England. Um, and sorry to interrupt you, but uh, you, you hit the nail right in the head. There is an anti-American sentiment uh, in, in England and... Um, when he took over, it was the, around that time when that TV show Ted Lasso was doing great. And people were actually comparing him to Ted Lasso, which was extremely unfair because the only reason they yeah. compared him to Ted Lasso is because he was he was American and he was no Pep Guardiola. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, exactly. And it was very unfair. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, look. Bob, Bob Bradley managing the Premier League previously, and and and, and he he really okay. struggled at Swansea, and um, he found it tough. But it, it was, I think the there was a, I think English fans, a certain type of English fan, finds it very offensive to hear Americans talking about soccer, and <laughs> people need to get over that. It, it's 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 yeah. it's you know there are. 
there's been a generation or two generations of really good American football players. There's now, I think, a generation of really decent coaches that that are, you know, yeah. and if we and if we're saying, oh, English coaches aren't good enough, English managers aren't good enough, with, with perhaps one or two exceptions, at least open your mind to what other people, other countries have to offer. It's it's yeah. uh, you can't just judge somebody by their passport or their accent or by their use of yeah. a certain terminology. I look, absolutely it didn't end well. It didn't went end well for Leeds for. Um, Marsh at Leeds, but yeah, it generally doesn't end well for for, for managers in the Premier League. They they yeah. generally, if you if you do well in the short term, achieve your first objective, which in in the case of um, Marsh at Leeds was just to keep them in the Premier League, then you've yeah you've probably been a success. Yeah. No, I I have a few points as an American living here in Europe. Uh, Jesse Marsh, I actually very. I, I, I'm surprised the U.S. men's national team hasn't just taken him as the manager. Yeah, yeah. I was just waiting for that to happen. Um, I was in the States um, last month and for a bit of time, and I, I, I don't follow the MLS. I barely fo- uh, The national team is hard to follow with the hour change, but I was still so – I went to a Seattle Sounders game, and I was so, still so surprised at how low the level is almost. Like we were talking mm. about Olympiakos is like on a downward trend in Greek football, but – I still feel like when I watched an MLS game, it was just, I, I don't know. It was very difficult to watch. Maybe that's a bias set in mm-hmm. my head, but Jesse Marsh, the one concern I have is as you noted, as we've noted, it is, how do I put it bluntly? A mess in Greece. And he's worked in Northern Europe and Austria and Germany in England, which is, is quite more organized than what it is in Greece. And well, what is he going to find when he when he goes to Greece and he's seeing all of this stuff and he's hitting Google Translate on the Olympiakos website? Is he going to be freaking out of it? You know, I I can imagine it as an American. You know, um, so. yeah, yeah. He's he doesn't he doesn't strike me as very Greek Super League. Yeah, in no, terms of his for me as well. In terms of his sort of calm, I suppose, not not necessarily yeah. calm on the touchline. No, but, I agree. But, but, I agree. But manner, his demeanor I, I, and. He's very I think, friendly. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, I think. But I Ernesto think, Valverde was very motionless. Or Ernesto Valverde is probably the most successful manager. He's definitely the most successful Olympiacos manager of the century, and he was very mm. motionless. He was very mm. robotic in his demeanor. He didn't. He was no way uh, shouty. Or same with Pedro Martins. It didn't engage to that. Yeah, but maybe maybe they were kind of. I mean, somebody like. Rafa Benitez strikes me as somebody who who would be you know look he'd be a dream appointment for somebody like Olympiacos wouldn't he but but if you if you he was he he always struck struck me as a very level headed guy who would restore order in in a chaotic situation and I think there are coaches like that who would restore order in a chaotic situation and um, and there are guys who would find a chaotic situation totally alien to their football culture. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the, I mean, MLS plus Red Bull, Red Bull sports empire is a really kind of, yeah, it's a very kind of almost collegiate um, sporting environment, isn't it? And it, uh, I would say almost like a sanitized sporting environment. I think going into that, you know, for, obviously Leeds was a, a bit mad, but it's you know, it's it's a fairly it's a lot more sensible club than it was a decade ago, um, 
and you think going going from that into Olympiakos and Maranakis and all of that, um, yeah, that that might be a a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure, and uh, it's almost the other end. You think the Gattusos of the world will fall into the trap of the madness? You know, they're gonna be like, yeah, yeah the referee. Yeah. It's it's almost like you want someone who's just like he already did it. Gattuso already did it with Offi, and he went yeah, viral with that exactly. Uh, went the, sometimes every good whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> so I I think it would be, it's a balancing act, like you say. You want someone who's who can can under, understand it. So Costa, any other names you we want to ask for? Uh, the next one, in my opinion, maybe I mean you mentioned dream appointments, Oli, and uh, I'm thinking out of my list, he's the closest we got, and that is. None other than Ralph Hasenhutl, who uh, burst onto the scene by leading RB Leipzig to second place in the Bundesliga back in 2017, which was considered a miracle. That was before RB Leipzig became uh, Bundesliga and Champions League mainstay. Successful four years at Southampton. I at least think they're successful. Whom at mm. some point he led to fifth place and in the Premier League table. They even topped the table for a day, and that was their first time in the club's history. High-pressing sort of football. In the with Premier a League Yes, in the Premier League era, of course. High-pressing sort of football with a 4-2-2-2 formation that switches to a 4-4-2. He likes to play out from the back and is all about possession. Uh, he likes a, a slow build-up that really helped him at Southampton uh, score some major victories and some major goals. Uh, doesn't like his players to create attacks from the wings, which is interesting. He doesn't like crosses. But instead, prefers the ball to be played through from the from central positions. What do you make of him, Molly? I like him. I like him a lot. I I think of of the names we've mentioned. I mean, look, I, I mentioned Rafa Benitez as, as a sort of dream appointment because you know, from a from a Olympiacos point of view. But uh, I don't I don't really see that happening. Um, of the names you mentioned, I I think Hasenhutl. Yeah, definitely. Um, he's he came in. Um, I, th look, I, I think people, when they look at his record, and look, I'm just looking at it now, 16th, 11th, 15th, 15th in the Premier League, his, his win his win percentage wasn't high. It was, But when you consider that the Southampton that he walked into in 2018, 2018, I think, was yes. very, very different. Very, very different to the Southampton that Pochettino walked into and that Koeman walked into um, and well walked into by that time so, so, you know the momentum and all the positivity around Southampton in the early years after promotion had gone a lot of the good players had gone they'd been replaced by inferior players they had been you know the all that sort of very kind of yeah quite self-satisfied talk of the Southampton way that had gone the club was the club seemed a bit broken and they very, very narrowly avoided relegation the previous season when Mark Hughes had come in after Pellegrino. So he um, then, like we were saying with, with other managers, a manager keeps the team up and then the same problems arise, uh, as happened with Hughes, um, who was sacked fairly early the next season. Then Hasenhutl came in, improved them, kept them up, but also, I think, significantly built on that survival operation. So he, he, he turned them into a, he sort of reintroduced, they, they were kind of in survival mode. They were in, you know, let's just desperately avoid relegation mode. And then Hasenhutl improved them and improved young players and 
brought back a sense of look, this is what Southampton are. This is they became a team that scored goals again. They finished eleventh in 2019-20, and they seem to be up on a you know on an upward trajectory again. And I think it was the only reason they didn't remain so was because they they stopped really investing well. They stopped recruiting well. I think I think you would say that the last two or three seasons, Hasenhutl was was their best was their best asset, really. It was nothing like the squads that had finished sixth and seventh under under Pochettino and Cumin. Uh, I like the the way they played, the sort of energetic vertical football, quite narrow, um fullbacks getting forward. Um yeah, I I I I felt I felt he did a good job in, in at Southampton. And it felt that this season, new ownership, he was on borrowed time from the start. Um, I, I always felt he was not going to last long in the season because I thought they were going to struggle, whoever whoever was in charge. And I think new owners always want to appoint their own man. They did. Nathan Jones, it didn't go well. Um, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And I think it probably showed what what, what Hootle had you know, that Hasenhutl had probably been not performing below expectations with that team. I think, you know, Southampton looked like getting relegated. I felt from the start of the season they would get relegated, whether they stuck with Hasenhutl or not. But I, I do feel that their best chance of staying up would have been if they'd stuck with him. I think he's a good, a good coach. You could look at his final, again, look at his final seven, eight, nine, ten games, and you'd say, well, look, it had gone, it had unravelled. They weren't defending well. They weren't scoring well. The team spirit had gone. That's maybe he, maybe his, maybe he'd run his course there. But I still think he was better than what what had come later. And and I think he's he's a, a really good coach. But again, I would have that question mark about: Is he very Greek Super League? Would he would he be a bit shocked after Red Bull and the Premier League by by what he would find in the in the Greek Super League and, and Olympiakos. I don't know. It's, again, a culture shock, potentially. But I find it interesting, encouraging, really, that they're looking at that type of coach rather than the sort of faded, you know, manager who's on the way downward trajectory looking for one last payday. I, 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 like, I like the fact they're looking at husband. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it's very important for Olympiacos fans to understand that when you take over a team like Southampton, the Premier League, your goal is to not be relegated. You cannot, you cannot dream about uh, about the title. You cannot dream about a top four. You cannot really dream about Europe. Maybe a dramatic push to the conference. Yeah, maybe, maybe you could dream of an Aston Villa esque kind of uh, kind of push, a Brentford esque kind of push. But the competition is so high there. I mean. Hasenhutl is considered successful at Southampton, even though he lost 9-0, not once but twice, to Leicester and Man United. Uh, but yeah, he has done a great, um, a great job in, uh, at Southampton, in my opinion. I think you hit the nail right in the head. But before we, we move on, I would like to ask you, what do you consider a Greek, a Greek Super League manager? <laughs> um, yeah. I think somebody who is, who's going to be... I think it probably has to be somebody who's quite streetwise. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, no, where they are. This happened of... with Carlos Corberan as well. He's very, I think we both think he's very yeah. good manager, but he showed up like a bit blue 
and he was rotating the lineup, trying things, lost three games in a row, and he was done. Like, I think he he didn't realize how tight the leash is, right? You know, it's uh, mm. – and I think he may be mm-hmm. one of these names that we're talking about in the Premier League very soon. Um, but in Greece, he wasn't a Greek Super League manager, you know. But, yeah, go on. Mm. Yeah, I, I think somebody – I, I don't know. I, I think they need to be prepared for the prepared for the chaos, whether it's dressing room, whether it's managing upwards into the boardroom, whether it's just trying to keep the fans um, calm. In, you know, sending out the right messages uh, after a, after a defeat or, or or whatever. I mean, look, you don't you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want the fans to be calm because it's you know it's great, <laughs> but it's but you would want but you don't want them going. You don't want people overreacting to every sort of ebb and flow of a, of a team's. You know, I, I think if, if somebody's kind of consistent and measured with their messaging about where the team's up to, and, and so I, I think that I think that helps. And this is not particularly talking about Greek football culture. It's about there are certain clubs in in England and in and in Scotland and in and, you know across Europe where you think the way you communicate with the fans at that club is really important. And I think Olympiacos is probably one of those clubs. Um, but yeah, it, it's probably about being streetwise. And the thing I said about Benitez, being able to bring a sense of order into a club where things are perhaps a little chaotic and where you might, where you might have a squad which has got... Look, I, the impression I got was that Olympiacos have perhaps after years of you know having the best Greek players and then having big name players who were maybe on a downward trajectory. The impression I had was that Olympiacos seemed to be going into more of a kind of let's develop players, let's let's mm. you know let's yeah. let's develop players to sell on um, that that kind of culture. But there has to be a patience that comes with that because. We don't do patience here. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you've also got an owner who's throwing in, you know, James Rodriguez, Marcelo, who you know probably aren't really massively financially or emotionally invested in in, yeah. in in what they're doing there. And so, from this sort of chaotic dressing room, you've got to try and I don't know, press the right buttons with with a quite disparate group of players and and introduce and maintain a way of playing i think it's really i think it's really difficult yeah. it's not just about being a technical tactical trainer you, you've got to manage upwards manage downwards manage outwards yeah in a way no, it's, that it's probably point. isn't the case at a lot of a lot of clubs across europe yeah and i i have one question stemming off of that um, you guys have written quite a bit about Marinakis and the events that have been going on at Forest. I'm sure there's going to be a story about what went wrong at the end of the season if they get relegated. How damaged do you think is the Olympiacos brand and the Marinakis brand after this situation? Like, how hard will it be for the club to, to bring a manager in? Like, you know, football is a huge... It's huge, but it, the people... You know, the, the community isn't so big and people speak. Do you think this chaotic environment is, is, is something that a lot of people are going to say no to? Like, it's becoming very well known 
um, abroad? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think necessarily. I mean, I, I, okay. I think. I Me think neither. Mm. No, I. I think it's still. I think it's still. I mean, it's a big club. You get the yeah. chance to compete for a title, but with that is the expectation that you, and the demand from the owner that you. Not just compete for the title, but that you, but that you win the title, but you, you never drop below first place. That that's the difficult thing. Um, it's yeah. I mean, look, Maranakis is clearly a very very difficult guy to work for. I think, however long Steve Cooper remains in situ at Forest, I think when he will, when he comes out of there, whether it's sacked or whether it's moving on to a another club, a more stable club, I think he'll probably come out with some horror stories about how hard it was but i i i think it's i think it's outside of the big five leagues outside the obvious places like ajax benfica porto um you know, it, it it probably is a, a a desirable job and people will go there knowing they will probably get sacked but sooner rather than later but it's 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 a job where you're probably well paid and you're probably well paid if you get sacked and the potential upside if you're the manager who cracks it like Pedro Martins did is huge you'll be a you'll be a hero and every manager fancies the their ability to be the the one who does better than all the guys who went before not necessarily you know not necessarily just at Olympiacos but Managers generally, you know, they generally back themselves to be able to do it. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I don't think, you know, I, I don't imagine that, you know, that they won't be fishing in the same pool as as they were, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. But yeah. at the same time, if you're, you know, a manager who has a good reputation, who's worked in the Premier League, it's probably one of the few jobs that that might entice you i'm sure not all of those managers would fancy it but some of them would yeah no it's i think the best case scenario for a manager is like marco silva he came here for a year yeah yeah he performed in the champions league won the i think he won the double maybe he only won the championship no no he won the uh the title he lost uh, he lost the cup he lost the he lost the cup and he he left and and his career is kind of skyrocketed so it's, it's one of those where uh, you you think of it as like maybe working at one of these big companies where it's like if you make it here you can make it anywhere you know it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a good point well I mean uh, I wonder how the next one would do at Olympiacos uh, Javi Gracia um, uneventful um, dramatic ending for him at Leeds uh, he has experience in Greece having coached Olympiacos Volu and Kerkira. Uh, joined Watford, uh, another club, another trigger-happy club. Uh, <laughs> nothing exceptional over there, I remember. Uh, oh, I, I, the... I, I think he was really good at Watford. Oh, oh. Yeah, I, I, I would say he was, the, he was the guy who... I think they've made a lot of bad appointments, Watford, mm-hmm. particularly, particularly since him. I think he's the one guy who... You could really think, well, they should definitely not have sacked him. That was that was that was. Uh, he, he started one season poorly, and I think he was sacked after 
four games, five games, something like that. But he got them to the FA Cup final the year before. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. they'd finished, I don't know, they finished 10th or something like that the, the year before. I think he looked, I think he's another one. And I'd put Marco Silva in the same category where people in England looked at it when he first got a job in the Premier League and thought, well, what's this guy done? They looked at his, his CV and it was, you know, he seemed to have managed everywhere, Spain, Russia, Greece, um, etc. Um, and never really done a great deal that would make you think, wow, this, this, this guy is good. But I, I think he, I think he looked good at, at Watford. And mm-hmm. I think that, that I think they, if you look at how the wheels have come off at that club the last four years, since you know, since that FA Cup final, I think, I think if they could change one thing, it would be that they shouldn't have sacked Garcia. Um, he's the one manager who I think looked like he might even get to you know he might even get to stay at Watford beyond beyond the first eighteen months. You know, he's he's by far the longest serving of Watford's managers over the over the Pozzo era. Um, mm-hmm. Good, I mean. I would say in terms of style, not the classical Spanish style, more of a more of an Emery um, sort of compact, deeper deeper defensive line um, approach than than a Guardiola or a Guardiola inspired coach. But yeah, I, I think he, I mean, he was managing Watford at the time and managing a struggling Leeds team at the time. Um, does the Leeds experience count against him? I think it was three wins in twelve games. Well, you know that might be that might be better than others would have managed in, this, in the same circumstances. It, it feels like Leeds is a bit broken, and he went in there initial uplift and then and then regression. Um, didn't really have long enough to leave leave a lasting impression there. But he, uh, yeah, I. I think I think he's he's good as well, but it's he's a very different style of football than than, for example, a Hasenhutl. Um So I I think he you know, and and I could imagine having managed in uh, Greece before, managed in Russia, and and managed in you know various clubs in Spain at various levels. Maybe he's a bit more streetwise than some of the hmm. other coaches we mentioned so yeah i i think he's i think he's got a, a respectable a respectable record mm-hmm. and uh last but certainly not least we got kike sanchez flores uh another former watford manager uh he won the europa league and uefa super cup in 2010 with atletico madrid preferred a 4-2-3-1 formation that changed to a 4-4-2 at watford but their game became very predictable. Uh, team wasn't compact, and that created open spaces in defense. Uh, how do you remember Flores? Um, quite fondly in terms of his, his initial spell at Watford. And, and look, g- g- going further back, um, Kistens, I mean, he yeah, he, yeah he, he won the cup uh, w- with Benfica. He then went to Real Madrid, uh, sorry, Atletico Madrid. I remember reporting on that. Europa League run where they beat Liverpool and beat Fulham in the final, and look, he, he was being talked about a lot as look, this this guy is is the next 
you know, the next big thing in, in, in coaching circles. This guy's going to um, come in, you know, for, for um, you know, coming into the frame for big jobs. And then they had a difficult second season, I think. And then the next thing you knew, he was, he was, you know, working in, in, in the UAE and, and then, um, yeah, yeah, in the UAE and then resurfaced at Getafe briefly and then at Watford. I thought I thought he did I thought he did quite well at Watford. Um to the point where when he was sacked at the end of his first season, I think people thought that's not really very fair. That's not you know he's on to a good thing. Why would you why would you ditch him after a first season? Um but yeah, his his second season at Watford. In fact, his subsequent career. I mean, he's he's sort of looking Espanol, then in China with Shanghai Shenhua, then back to Watford, which just didn't work out. He, he was it was he arrived in September and was gone by December, and and then you know a, a reasonable spell back at Hitafe, but sacked again. He's clearly he's clearly got some ability and some talent. More more in that more in that sort of. Um, again, more in that sort of Javi Garcia mould than than a than a more sort of progressive possession based coach. But again, maybe that to an extent reflects the jobs he's had at, at smaller struggling clubs. But yeah, I think even even when he was at um, Atletico, I think he he favoured a fairly sort of pragmatic defensive ish formation and and approach. So. I, I think I think he's I think he's a good um, he's a good coach, but it, but but yeah, it's he's clearly a very different in outlook and style to a Jesse Marsh or a Rolf Hasnoodle. So really, I think you shouldn't you shouldn't have the same guys on on the same shortlist. Either you're looking for that type of coach or this type of coach, and which is it, or or are you just looking for a a big name who's out of work. That's the it very often happens with, with, with clubs and not just in Greece, but in the Premier League where you know they'll they'll a club will be looking for a you know or a club will flip in, in the case of Leeds will go from a Bielsa to a Jesse Marsh to a Javi Garcia to Sam Allardyce in twelve months. It's 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 very often pe- people just appoint based on what's available and what the immediate needs are rather than on the sort of long-term values and, and strategy that they might have had before. Yeah, um, it, it, indeed, actually. I mean, I've said it to the boys before. Uh, it's any sort of uh, transfer talk, um, any sort of transfer talk before the manager is appointed, appointed to me is always redundant because one manager wants one thing, another manager wants another thing. They have different mentalities. I mean, Oliver. Th- I mean, you, you you have been amazing. I mean, we were almost uh, an hour and a half in, and you've answered all of our questions. I have one last question uh, before I before I give the floor to Labro, uh, which I forgot to ask you. Would you say Jesse Marsh played any role whatsoever, one percent, in Erling Holland's development at Salzburg? Any sort of role? Um, I've heard I've heard various coaches talking about about their role in. Um, his development and most of them most of them really kind of 
play it down and just say, look, this guy was a, you know, whether it's scouts or, or, or coaches, they play it down. They, they, they say, well, this guy was clearly a phenomenon at the age of 15, 16, um, and was always going to be, you know, an incredible player and, 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 a, and a phenomenon. But I think when you look at, look at the, the move he made aged, what was it, 18? When he left Norway, or maybe not, but but when he left Norway and went to Salzburg, not every coach would have wanted to play him straight away. Maybe it was maybe it was a, a more of a strategic Red Bull kind of decision. But you don't you don't have to you don't have to show as much faith in in, in a in a teenage centre forward. Um, I think just playing him at that point, I think it was a great move for him. To go, I mean, the incremental steps he's made in his career from going to Norway to Austria to to Dortmund, you know, top German team, and now into you know the the most dominant team in the Premier League, it's just been perfect, hasn't it? The the the, the progression, and I've spoken to a few people who have said, well, should Manchester United, given given that they just appointed Solskjaer, who knew who knew him um, at that point, you know, they were at his former club, Mulder. Um, I think the appointment of Solskjaer came like a couple of days after, after, um, after Holland had, had agreed to move to Salzburg. I think that's right. Had he mm-hmm. gone to Manchester United at that point, at 18 or whatever, he might have drowned in, in yeah. what was, um, in what Manchester United were at that time. Would he have got, would, would, would have, a leading Premier League club with all the expectation and demands and pressure, would they have been able to give him the room to develop the way he had at Salzburg? I suspect not. So I, I think that that move was perfect for him. I'm guessing Jesse. I'm guessing he would have made it whether it had been Jesse Marsh or Ted Lasso in charge. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm look, I, I, I'm sure I'm sure he learned, he learned something something good for for. Um, under Jesse Marsh, I think that Salzburg team. I remember watching them at Anfield in um, in the Champions League that group stage that season. They're really good, and you know Minamino and and others. It was it was a it was a it was a good team and playing really bold football. And I'm sure if they'd been playing boring, defensive, pragmatic football, Haaland wouldn't have progressed at quite the same rate, or his goal scoring rate might not have done, but. I think um, I think he would have made it regardless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Labro, do you have any follow-ups? No, I think the, that's it, Oliver. Um, we hope you enjoyed the time at the game, and yeah, definitely, thank you for definitely. thank you for spending time talking with us. Because yeah, as you can see, it's a bit crazy. Olympiacos, it's a bit it's insane right now. It's a bit crazy, and um, yeah, there's a lot of stories that, that we hear and that uh, we try to share as much as we can, but it's it's no, something this, else. It's something else. Yeah, like like I was saying at the start of the you know at the start, it, it's we always think that as well as the quality and the strength of the Premier League and the tradition of it, that as journalists uh, we often feel like the, the sort of soap opera of the Premier League, the various characters and the managers and the, you know, some of the controversies and so on, that, that they somehow 
enhance the the whole Premier League story from a media point of view. But compared to the Greek Super League, well, it's it's like um, it's like I don't know if this reference will will mean anything to to people, but it's like makes the Premier League look like the Archers, which is this sort of very traditional BBC Radio Four soap opera where. where I think nothing happens um, sitting in a village. Never, I've never listened to it. It's, it's, um, it's, it's probably li- listened to by the type of people who are avidly watching the coronation right now as I'm talking about Olympiakos. But it's, <laughs> it's, um, but it's, um, but it's yeah, it, it makes the Premier League look very sedate, very sanitised. Yeah. And I'm obviously including the atmosphere in that, you know, the, the match day atmosphere because... If any any um, any English football fans who are fancy, you know, I know some people like they like go to Spain or to Germany to watch a you know a match and sit in the stands there and have a beer and and savor a different type of atmosphere, make a city break of it. Go to Athens, go to a go to one of these games, or go to Salonica where I've seen the the Ring of Fire. It's it's it's, yeah. it's just I think Greek football is just so mad and clearly such an experience and um i will be um following what happens uh in in this latest derby yeah hopefully absolutely let's see if it's played first but yeah hopefully yeah 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 for me if panathinaikos loses the championship it's the best case scenario so hopefully we can help them with that <laughs> you know so <laughs> yeah Oli, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Don't forget to uh, to like and subscribe. We're going to be bringing you a lot of uh, a lot of a, a, a lot of other important and interesting interviews for the channel. Lots of important stats and graphs. Thank you so much for the support. Don't forget to like and subscribe. You can follow Oli at at Oliver K. Uh, what other social media channels do you have, Oli? Oh, well, I have I have an Instagram which is Oliver K One at Oliver K1, which has some great pictures from my, my time in Greece. Um, Excellent. Not many, not many pictures from the subsequent two months, so they'll be nice and near the top. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can subscribe, subscribe to The Athletic and, and um, read the article about, um, about, uh, about the derby uh, in our Derby Days um, series, which I'll, I'll happily post a link on the um yeah. uh yeah on, on twitter do. and and um with the, there's also there's also been some great coverage of marinakis uh, almost you know from a from a forest perspective as well i think it's yeah. um, i think it's it's definitely the most in-depth and insightful pieces that i've read on marinakis and uh yeah he's an interesting guy yeah <laughs> let's put it diplomatically Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Oliver. Guys, we'll see you next time.